Hi, and welcome to this episode of The VFX Show. We are going to volume three of The Guardians of the Galaxy, and joining us on this interstellar, interdimensional uh, journey is uh, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am feeling groovy. It feels like Friday, but it's only Wednesday, but I'm <laughs> taking the next two days off work, so it's my friend. And to, uh, to uh, fill out the, the roster is my good friend, Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? I'm great. I try to live every day like Friday. That is what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> so Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, some people have said that this has restored their faith in Marvel because it's old school Marvel back what Marvel used to be really good at. Um, <laughs> others are sort of pointing to the fatigue of Marvel in terms of just having superhero plots. Where do we sit on that, Matt? Do we, do we think this is, uh, oh my God, still another Marvel film? Or did we actually uh, have a good time and go... Thank the Lord for that. Well, I won't deny that I suffer from an extreme case of Marvel fatigue, as really? we all know. That so surprises me, he said sarcastically. Oh, however, <laughs> um, you know, I do like what uh, Professor Gunn has done with the uh, Guardians uh, franchise. I think what makes those movies fun is that they, they're kind of campy. They don't take themselves too seriously. They have a lot of fun in the universe of the genre, much in the way that uh, Taika Waititi has done with his uh, Thor films. So I think of the the oeuvre of the Marvel movies, I think these James Gunn Guardian stories and the um, and there's actually some things about this one that I think it it almost approaches being something that like is really cool in a way in terms of some of the message in the story, like it, it jetes right up to the edge of Ghoulville, right? Um, but I think, um, yeah, you know, for a Marvel film, like I don't have high expectations, but, uh, it was fun. I, the only cri real critique, uh, of the film is it's just about 25, 30 minutes too long. <laughs> like it doesn't need to be that long. Like I just, I, I literally was fatigued by the time it was over anyway. Okay. Jason, where do we land? I loved it. I literally just saw it. Uh, just got back like half hour ago. Uh, I, I, I really, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm fatigued by Marvel, but I do have a, like, I've missed a number of films uh, so far that I just haven't gotten out to see. And I don't feel like I'm really missing anything, but like this film definitely wasn't going to miss. I really dig what James Gunn does. And to your point, Matt, there is a, a, a I think he rides a really good line of being serious with the characters when the characters need to be serious but the film itself gets funny and campy when the film itself needs to be funny and campy. So it's like Great. two, it's like a swirl, soft serve swirl that kind of, you know, goes around itself just, just the right amount. I mean, I would say that's what made Iron Man work, right? Iron Man yeah. had yeah. those sort of, you know, like often Stark would come out with lines that were very uh, in the zeitgeist and hip and whatever and funny but then there was no question that there was something at peril. I think one of the reasons I enjoyed this film so much, and I really did enjoy it, is that there was something at peril. And that was, I knew that the film as it currently stood was the third of a sequence where a lot of the actors weren't continuing on. And so going in, unlike, uh, let me compare and contrast it with the last um, Ant-Man film, right? The last Ant-Man film, I had no question that all of them were going to survive. They were all going to be living happily ever after. And I just had to watch them go through the motions. In this one, I was genuinely worried that they were going to kill off one or two major characters. 
And that made it really interesting because instead of just being, you know, clearly you're not going to get hurt, clearly you're going to be fine, clearly they're all going to just win at the end of the day, I was like, oh, hang on a second. Plus, the other problem with Ant-Man and the general Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe at the moment is it's taken a really heavy uh, beating, I think, from going into this multiverse. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. the second you go into this multiverse, it's like- there are, anyone can die off and come back. Yeah, nothing anyone matters. can get out of anything. Anything is, and it's also it's 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 the cinematic version of the CG camera that can go anywhere and do anything, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so you get this like unrealistic vibe in the same way that we used to criticize these um, you know, god cameras that would just fling around in CG in a very unrealistic way. And when they're grounded, like they got, say, when Pixar started doing uh their their completely com- computer-generated movies, but with the physical properties, as it were, Mm -hmm. uh, of a CG camera, they just became that much more tactile and real and just resonated. And I feel like uh, thematically, this is what this film did as well. It was like, you know what? We could kill off any of these characters. And so when they go into a battle, it's not guaranteed that they're all coming out. And so you kind of, oh, okay, I really care now what's going on. So I think that was- Well, and plus plus the sort of um Gamora's back but he doesn't know her and so they have they have the ability to rekindle or try to rekindle something you know because it's it's just enough to to split the ends apart uh, you know to so feel it a little like something it different yeah yeah. You, yeah I think the most powerful thing in the in the story from my perspective was something that I didn't even remotely expect going into the theater which was that this was a story that focused really on the backstory and the history of Rocket Raccoon. Mm -hmm. And so what unfolded in the narrative was something that really surprised me and that I, I have to confess, like I, like I loved the fact that it's kind of an animal rights movie, right? Like it kind of felt like it was (laughs) this movie about animal rights and about, you know, animal uh, sentience um, the only caveat uh, to to that, I would say, is that there's two times uh, in the film where they say, we have to save the higher life forms. And they say, I thought mm-hmm. we were only saving the higher life forms. And I yeah. wish there had been a line that said, that's exactly what we are doing. Or yeah. like, these are the higher life forms. Like in a weird way, mm-hmm. that would have been really a, like a heroic stance to take. Like, you know, but it, it did they stick out a little it, bit. But they, okay, but yeah. But it, that was one of the things about the film that I actually really thought was kind of fresh and profound and powerful and something you don't see in a mainstream film where they really went for something that was, in essence, like it had the the flavor of something that was really engaging with, you know, these sentient uh, animals. Although it ends the with show. them going hunting and killing a bunch of animals that are yeah. stampeding. <laughs> like, what? Well, he go, like, he's, yeah, he's. He says these rockets says it's because the, the villagers can't protect themselves. So well, it's like they're, yeah, they're the it, ones who should be stampeded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. we've had we we always say at the end of the show if you want to give us your feedback, please do. And we got some feedback saying generally people, some people really enjoy when we get into the visual effects and they find mm-hmm. this first part where we're like picking apart the thematic issues. <laughs> well, not insufferable, but like not necessarily as enjoyable. So we will get to the visual effects. For those of you, we take note of your emails and we, they, you were very kind, uh, very, very supportive, but you, you want us to break down VFX and we will. But I will say this, the, there are a couple of, I don't, I almost think it's rude to get too caught up in the plot because clearly we're not there for the plot primarily. 
but I, I was of the impression that for all of the we're going to care for the lower life, uh, lower order creatures stuff, all of the people on the planet, if you want to call them people, mm-hmm. got just annihilated, right? Like there was <laughs> yeah. not much done to protect the hundreds of thousands, if not millions yeah. of creatures that had children and and mm-hmm. were, you know, walking the streets and mowing their lawns and doing all the things, or be them, you know, uh, manufactured uh, sort of, I don't know, experimental uh, animals slash people. But I, nobody seemed to care about them. And like, I felt like this good, was a classic, uh, you know, red shirts, like security officers, right? Like we'll do anything to protect Spock, but we'll happily lose six or seven security officers to do it, yeah. right? It's uh, really schizophrenic cares. that way in terms yeah. of its value set. But what, if, but what if red's not your color? It doesn't go with my eyes. But, you know. but, what, if, <laughs> but what if, yeah. So anyway, I mean, so I, yeah, I mean, like I think it's a little, uh, you know, it's very hard to get something this wacky and not have kind of some pretty major plot issues. Though, again, as I say, you're not really there for the the plot. But that being said, um, what do we think about the actual uh, sort of setup of the characters? Because it was kind of an interesting splitting apart of the characters just in terms of like uh, how they did the plot, separate the team. And again, like it seemed like a rather hard bit of a jump that when Rocket was sick at the beginning, the only solution was immediately jump in a spaceship and fly away to try and find a security code. Like nobody thought to email and ask if they could send it or like have any other way of getting, I mean, it just seemed like, like you immediately jump in a rocket ship and just fly away. It's like, God, if somebody's hurt, you tend to think about what you can do in the short term, not like, you know, going on a voyage. But anyway, but leaving that aside for a second, what do we think about the fact that having done these various devices to split apart our heroes, they stayed pretty much split apart until they came back for that incredible one in the hallway mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, obviously the big finale uh, in space. Did you? I kind of thought maybe I'd agree with Matt that it was a little long, but I thought it was a good, it sort of avoided the normal problem of a Marvel film, which is there's a, there's a villain, everything looks really bad, and then we just have a huge battle that normally destroys New York, Los Angeles, or London. And I, it didn't feel like that to me. Like there was just an obvious, we're going to stop the plot now and just have a third act destruction sequence. So I, th- I thought that was good. Yeah, I think they I, broke it. They broke it I into don't. several different parts. And, you know, the part with the, uh, I can't remember the name of the place they go to, but the, um, where they're, it's Organic like planet the, thing? Yeah, that like, like, like that's just pure like 70s sci-fi, mm-hmm. like spoofy comedy, the costumes, the absurdity of that whole universe. And the and the opportunity for the characters to kind of lean into the sort of comedy chops and stuff, but you know the um, the different acts, the different pieces, the different um, set pieces, uh, you could feel them in the script. You could feel them in terms of how they were structured into the narrative, and it felt like there were things that were just a, from a story standpoint of a kind of a Marvel film. A, a, a late late period marvel movie you know you do feel like you're watching this formula unfold for the most part with a, you know some original jokes and a few original tweaks and fun to see some of the characters that we like doing this that and the other and i think for the most part always really pretty great effects work but there's a moment where yeah it feels like very jumbled and the script feels very convenient you know in terms of uh, like you're saying like jetting off the whole team has to go save rocket but he's in the ship but then they kind of leave him there and (laughs) they don't stay around to protect him and you know whatever it's suspension of disbelief i will say this and and gun himself has admitted this was one of the hardest things to get into the plot the if i was to do the 20 minute cut i wouldn't cut those sequences uh that we've discussed i would simply say forget about trying to get adam warlock back in like 
I yeah. feel like his character was completely redundant. Yeah. Um, it was just, why is he there? He's and- just there to cause mayhem and like fuck him up at times and like, Take he's his, like the he's a, the boys the boys like in yeah. being inserted into the universe of the Marvel world yeah you know, the Amazon show the boys yeah yeah but it really uh, didn't didn't sort of fit as a villain and I mean I know that at the end I mean, he becomes a guardian but you know whatever yeah it was yeah it wasn't I mean it's fine like I, it didn't bother me it didn't stick out but it didn't add in it wasn't like a great addition uh, I thought I I. Um, to your point, Matt, the Orgone or whatever the organic planet thing was, uh, I don't know if you guys got this, but the, basically their tardigrade suits, <laughs> like all the guys, like they just looked like big tardigrades and it's like, that's fucking genius. There's like space bears floating around, you know, uh, um, I don't know. I, I like living in the world of it and mm-hmm. even, it didn't necessarily yeah. feel long to me. Because because he gives you these moments where it's not bombastic all the time, you know, because they, he has an ensemble that can, to your point, Matt, do comedy chops. He yeah. lets them kind of just exist and they just all of a sudden they're arguing and they're having conversations like Three's Company all of a sudden, you know, and it just it, it changes the tone. And then, oh, shit, we got to fight. Boom, boom, boom. And you're like, oh, OK. So the, he he. I think Gunn is really good at that, like setting these sure. little mini yeah. waves off in the sequences do all the sequences make sense no but it in their universe it kind of feels workable he's a talented uh, filmmaker yeah, he's a talented yeah. filmmaker he's got a unique ish you know kind of generational vision i think very generation mm-hmm. x kind of vision of this kind of narrative this kind of story and he's good at it yeah i mean yeah. i think he's proven was... that time and again that he's got a real skill in that yeah i think so too i think though that yeah, so notwithstanding some of the plot elements were like, hey, just go with us on this because yeah, you need to go with us. You're going to have fun. Yeah. Um, I guess to a certain extent, the film was also mildly criticized with like, you have to be quite immersed in Marvel Cinematic Universe to know what the hell was going on. Because if you'd sure. only just seen volume one and volume two, you'd see volume three and you'd be like, what? And there's like one bit of elevator dialogue that meant to explain why, um, you know, uh, the Chris Pratt's character is like so rejected uh, by Gamora, but I just like, you know, it's just like in passing, we're going to try and explain this really quick, but you know, you guys know what's going on, don't you? Like it's kind of a nod and wink to the audience. Like you saw the Christmas special, you get it, right? It's like, okay, sure. Let's just go oh, yeah, with I that. Didn't, I, I didn't see the Christmas special, so. Okay. <laughs> and some of the jokes wouldn't have worked. Okay. Yeah, so, but it all worked for me anyway. Okay. So here's the question now. So Framestore and Weta, the two main visual effects houses, Framestore yeah. Uh, and Weta both worked on Rocket, um, but Framestore uh, in the split, as I understand it, and I don't have this statistically, but I, you know, did a bit more Rocket than uh, than Weta. Weta did the um, sh- uh, ship coming out off the planet when uh, the fake Earth planet, um, and also the uh, incredible Wanna shot, which we probably mm-hmm. discuss in great detail in a minute. Um, but let's go to just Rocket for a second because. This is probably, I reckon, some of the best uh, cutesy, um, smulchy, but totally works character animation I've ever seen in my life, both for Weta and for Framestore. Like, this is par excellence acting through a digital character with fur. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, next level. I don't think of any other character that I've seen that's like, a, as I say, like a claw, uh, sorry, a fur type 
kind of character, be it a dog, be it a cat, be it any kind of made up thing that just was so pulling at the heartstrings. I mean, I genuinely think that it was, it, it landed. Some people have said it's too much. I actually thought no it worked. Way. Like, yeah. I, and I think that's con- your, your description of this film is con- for rocket is consistent with all the three of the films. Honestly, I think rocket has been a superior uh, from a visual effects standpoint has been a superior execution for all three films. I mean, he's, he always, I, I don't recall us having like a ton of negative uh, feedback on either of the other films when, where rocket's concerned um, as an, as a digital actor, as a, as the renders. And of course at the, renders at the time, obviously, yep. you know, 10, 15 years different or whatever they are. He has, he has actually evolved from, from movie to movie, but Matt, yeah, yeah. don't you, Matt, I, don't you think it would be like an incredibly tough challenge to be the team that did Rocket Baby Rockets uh, colleagues because they're so grotesque and they're so in, like on paper kind of ugly, and yet like you're kind of heartbroken when anything happens to them, and that's not an easy thing to do to produce something that's like downright horrific and creepy as all get out, but also have the audience just kind of ooing and ahhing and and sort of sobbing over their demise. Well, I think, you know, in, from an effects standpoint, from a design standpoint, Rocket, I mean, you know, the, initially just Rocket, the big eyes, the the baby Rocket, right? The sort of um, baby raccoon, the the kind of, the, the, the larger, the slightly larger eyes, the moisture, the wetness in the eyes, mm-hmm. the, the kind of, the, the angle that it's shot in, the looking kind of down, on him while he's looking up at you, uh, you know, if, if for anybody who has a dog, uh, that emotes, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's such a familiar ploy. Um, it's powerful. It's, it's highly emotional. And then I think for all of his, his four or his three friends, right. The rabbit, the walrus and the sea otter, the sea otter is the most dog like most similar to rocket and is the one that is, uh, I think similarly plays to that emotional um, in terms mm-hmm. of the way it's rendered, the way it's animated, the eyes again, um, it has that same kind of um, tear jerker emotional pull. And the, I think the walrus is kind of, it's, it's well executed. It, it looks really great. Like the, the whole sort of walrus upper lip, the brow, the mustache, the big teeth, um, all the elements of it. And then it's in this kind of weird, like mono wheel wheelchair kind of uh, thing. It's sort of this hybridized robot walrus. It's compelling. But then the one that I think is the hardest one to get to emote, um, but still is an incredibly effective render and animation challenge is the rabbit. The rabbit Mm -hmm. having this large metallic uh, muzzle over its mouth. So you never really see its mouth move. But you can kind of see, I think, the rabbit eyes and sort of the, mm-hmm. the overall rabbit shape. But then this kind of insect-like, these spindly kind of pin-like legs to get that character to uh, emit any kind of feeling or emotion, I think, is really challenging from an animation perspective. But, you know, interestingly, the the script does a lot of the heavy lifting. I mean, it does all the heavy lifting really here in a lot of ways and provides the effects team and the animators with an opportunity to get all the characters to feel and express an enormous amount of emotion to the point where when Rocket does return to the the pen area after sort of in the, you know, spoiler alert here, and they've all been killed, um, seeing the bodies 
of these mm -hmm. characters that you, he was just having this kind of friendly, wonderful conversation with. They all kind of gave each other their, they claim their own names, you know, as opposed to their numbers. When you see those bodies lying still, you know, it's, it's pretty powerful. It's pretty arresting emotionally. So the, it speaks to the quality of the effects work, the quality of the uh, animation and the renders in order to convey that kind of life, that kind of emotion, so that we feel at that moment as an audience, we feel that there really is a sense of loss there. It, it reminded me from an emotional standpoint, to your point, Matt, when I saw them and we started understanding like their sort of deconstruction, reconstruction, you know, uh, current bodies, I guess. It reminded me of the toys in Sid's bedroom in totally. Toy oh, Story, one. right? Yeah. Like you don't, yeah. and they can't speak. That's, you know, th those toys couldn't even speak. But when they came out, you understood immediately from the animation and from the script and the setting that, that they weren't meant to be that way, but that they had, and they had these little emotional beats, which all Yeah, there's, them. you feel empathy for them in yeah. their freakish state. And I think yeah. that's a perfect analogy. I thought of the same thing yeah. watching the movie that it feels like Sid's misfit yeah. Island of misfit toys or whatever. Yeah. But it's sort of like Dr. You know, whatever mask face Island of misfit toys. I can't remember <laughs> the name of the bad guy, but um, yeah, the I think it has that exact same, that exact same uh, kind of vibe. And it's, it's a, it's also a, a something that feels really connected. I could be wrong here, but I just, in my understanding of the filmmaker, it feels really connected to the filmmaker's narrative uh, and sense of self too, in a sense that it's, you know, it's the, it's the outcast, the guardians are the outcast mm -hmm. too. Right. So this whole mm -hmm. motif of the outcast and the outcasts banding together, you know, it's like the, you know, punk rock youth or whatever, you know, kind of vibe. Yeah. Well, the and ravagers finding, and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Creating a family, you know, creating their own mm -hmm. family. And that reinforces that metaphor again in the narrative. And I think that all the, all the quality of those characters in terms of their design, their rendering, their lighting, their animation, mm -hmm. um, the voice acting, like it's it's really, really successful. And it's a great synthesis of that kind of um, really high level, you know, fur based uh, and some hard surface modeling too, like character animation, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's really, really tight. Yeah, I think it's spectacularly good acting from the animators. Like they, they just- absolutely do everything and use everything to produce a really good performance. What do we think about um, uh, Groot, Groot, Groot in this uh, iteration of him? So I Am Groot started with, uh, you know, the kind of thinner, older notionally version of the tree. Uh, it then became the sapling in the pot, uh, which was very cutesy. Then it became the adolescent. And here we've kind of got a version that is actually kind of bigger, it seems, than the version we started with in the first film. And it's He's more- He's swole teenager, like <laughs> a, a young man. Yeah, but but it, it's sort of like they've amped him up. I'm not, I'm not disliking him, but I, he almost seemed a little cliched and he's amping up. Like I he thought that the other iteration- yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Not or that like was a man in badly. a suit. True. Yeah, I mean, I think- I think what I it sort of felt like is you know sometimes when somebody does a caricature they sort of accentuate stuff out yeah. of it, mm -hmm. and that's what it felt like here. Like the original Groot, I thought was really good in mm -hmm. his uh, physicality. This one seemed a bit too buffed, a bit too kind of chunky, a bit too which didn't I don't 
And I mean, I, I think the adolescent version was spectacularly well executed because it mm-hmm. had that kind of like, I don't care, you know, um, Angst. sort of, yeah, despondent <laughs> um, sort of Kurt Cobain phase. But, yeah, yeah. but this one was like, yeah, you're just, it's a bit like you're too buffed, you're too kind of built. I think the, I think the thing that stood out for me for this group, besides the volume of him, is the, in the original group, and I, I get that he was older, quote unquote, in the first one, but uh, the texture of the wood in the first one, like felt like weathered, like you could, there mm-hmm. were cracks you could not necessarily see through, but there was like history, right? Visual history on him. And this one feels, felt a little more like they scanned the action figure that had a little less detail, you know, it was like a little smoother, a little, and I don't know, I mean... I didn't, I didn't know if that was because of, uh, you know, he's supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, in this teen, uh, you know, twenties, early twenties phase, but it didn't have the, it didn't have the age to it in the wood and that I, I think thought he looked, looked like feel they, a little more real. He looked more, more anthropomorphized. He was more I like, was going to say, I thought he even looked more, he looked more rubber. Like it looked more yeah. like a guy yeah, in a that's suit, what I mean. like a like, rubber yeah, suit yeah. rather than a character made you know, from wood, like a tree wood, yeah. kind of, yeah. yeah. And it's no fault of the, of the animators or of the effects team. I don't think it's really, it's really just a, it's a design choice that's made yeah. that alters the, the ability of the character to uh, possess the same qualities again, right? It's just, it's a change from a design standpoint. You could I still have, have all an- those pittings and markings and stuff but it, yeah it feels like it, he was less of a character in this story yes exactly i think of all the yeah. three movies we've seen him in and the tv special and whatever he was the least successful as being an interesting character if that makes sense i agree yeah i mean yeah. his his wings the whole wing thing was a little odd to me yeah it was uh, like he'd become a bit like well we just need to amp him up and so he just suddenly gained sort of superhero status in a way that was a little crossing into the implausible. Like, it, I don't think we would have bought him as a successful character if this was the first time we saw him. And if he looked Agreed. like this in, in the first volume one, but I think we buy him now because he's in volume three and we saw the others. But, you know, even when he was the adolescent version or the cutesy sapling version, like they did feel much more wooden. And I mean that in a in the way you were referring to it, Jason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, and and uh, Matt, and not this kind of just do anything because I again that's my problem when they can do anything and survive anything and nothing's going to hurt them. They then... also design wise they compressed his head yeah in the mm-hmm. vertical axis where he he had a kind of longer yeah. uh, mm. structure to his skull and to the shape of his head in the first mm-hmm. two films even when he was the tiny sapling version and it felt like he mm-hmm. was compressed vertically and everything about him became more horizontal. He became a wider character than he was a vertical character, even when he would extend himself to try to, you know, pull back a a quill, quill. Yeah. When when he tried to extend to capture him or when he expand his mini arms, uh, you know, with all his mini guns or whatever, you know, like he still felt like kind of stumpy. The way he was depicted, and animated in the verse volume, he felt like a bit like Rocket was the only one that understood him really. And he didn't fully understand the world. Like he felt more alien, mm-hmm. like he was not right. of our world. And that he was like, it was like a gentle giant that, you know, was not in a hurry 
but was had all the right intentions, but tapped into that whole world of literature where you've got the 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 gentle giant that's maybe not a hundred percent as clued in on a cognitive level as everybody but he's else. Dis- but he's hard. discovering things. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Whereas this one, it was more like, hey, I'm hip to it and I'm down with everything. Now, of course, you could be listening to this and saying, well, that's totally what would happen if you'd grown up with the Guardians and there's a whole fan fiction about him growing up in space, so he's bigger than the previous version of him because he didn't have gravity to restrict his growth. And there's a whole lot of like backfilling That's theories to why this my is. Brain. <laughs> yeah, but but at the end of the day, I just feel like I didn't care about Groot in this film anywhere near mm-hmm. as much as I cared about him in, like, say, the first one, where I just when he does that self-sacrifice thing with the uh, surrounding them with the uh, ball, it was just uh, again, it was like, yeah. heartbreaking. Okay. Well, also he gets his in this in this film. Uh, I don't know if it's a direct nod to the thing, but you know his head gets cut off, and then he has the legs, and he kind of yeah. See, that's runs another. Away. That's and another like, superhero thing. Yeah. And then in the next cut, he's a full-bodied thing. Yeah. But didn't we have two movies where we saw him get kind of decimated, and we had to wait for him to grow up? I'm not saying that we needed the same action, but it was a little like. But the rules does change. He, does he just rules heal change. now? Does he just kind of do his thing? But like, you know. And also, and I, there's a huge criticism I had of the second one, which was the giant brain at the center of the planet. There's the same problem going on here, right? Which is that you assume that the essence of a person is just their brain. If their entire body yeah. is blown away, that they're still them because their brain is there. And this is just not how it is. Like it's, you know, their, their embodiment is not just this uh, sort of, brain sitting in the, and if you kill off everything else, it's fine. I, I found that very, yeah, I actually put that in my mind. I disliked that shot so much of him as just a yeah. mutated head with uh, tiny little legs. Although, although <laughs> yeah, although you're, what you're just describing is Rocket's plot, not his plot, but the plot of the high uh, evolutionary literally just wants Rocket's brain, right? True. Yeah. And so- so, but, so it's like his presence in the in the environment is just much more than some abstracted intellectual. Uh, oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I'm uh, agreed. I'm just saying it, from what you were just saying, you just reminded me, like, because you were saying it's not just the brain; it's the whole thing. But that dude just wants the brain to extract yeah. the quote knowledge to make make them all smart or whatever. Which again is just uh, fairly ridiculous. But anyway, leave that aside for a second. The science of it. Hey, um, so we talked about the brilliant work that Framesaw did and the brilliant work of Rocket. And if anyone hasn't seen it, we'll put it in the show notes, links to the early tests that they have put out online of uh, Baby Rocket, which was just spectacular. But I want to discuss that one shot. So mm-hmm. in the middle of the attack, um, the team does in fact regroup. And it's the last time that we'll see this set of Guardians fight as one. And they do a classic hallway um, fight sequence, which is a great device in all sorts of cinema. I'm sure you guys have better cinematic references than I do. But I mean, you have, you're at this end, you need to get to the other end. And there mm-hmm. are a lot of guys in the way. And you can't get out of it because it's a hallway. And so in that contained space, our guardians um, take on, I don't know how long that shot is, but it felt like minutes. Yeah, and, it's uh, Yeah. It's... It's a it's a heck of a visual effects piece. It was actually done by Weta. Um, so Matt, lead us off. What do you think of that one? Was it necessary? And did it work for you? Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a fantastic, uh, heroic and heroic VFX shot. I would say more than a heroic <laughs> story points shot. I mean, 
what it what it is in the story and in the kind of universe of these characters, I think is, you know, it's the gatefold in the comic book, right? It's the fold out yeah. thing in the it's the you know the centerfold of the comic where it's all the heroes like in this massive composition. Um, but here it's the cinematic version of that and the visual effects version of it in a way that I think is it's as good. And I would I even kind of think I need to see that scene again, but I'd even lean into start to say it's better than the kind of similar shots we've seen in like, I think it was in the first Avengers one where they're in New York on the near. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the big spinning central. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's kind of that shot again, but this takes it to another level in my opinion, where the complexity, I, I, I have to confess when I watching it, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around exactly how it's done because it's it's got so much action, motion, vector, uh, alter, altercations of the vector of the camera, right? And mm-hmm. it even feels like the the lensing of the camera changes from moment to moment in a way that doesn't really make sense as a as like a real camera move, but it does feel like a thing that. Uh, it really feels like a comic book, but a live action comic book movie scene. And I think, you know, that's its purpose, but the overarching action, the slow motion aspect of it, the ballet, the dance of the whole thing, mm-hmm. the, the, of the camera, of the actors, of the, you know, the, the, the killing, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the, the cool action. I mean, it's, it's really grand. And I think it, it it's pulled off in a way that at least for me, like, I'm just like, when it started, I didn't know what it was, right. It starts and I didn't know this is what I'm watching. And then it kept going and I'm like, Oh, fuck, you know, fuck, I wish I was watching that more closely. Like <laughs> that's really something like, and, I, and it's what makes me want to go back and see it again uh, just for that shot. Cause it, I think it's a really unique visual effect shot that clearly is uh, many, many people's uh, extraordinarily hard work uh, on screen. And I think it really pays off. I will say, I will agree with you 100%. And I will say the thing that I think makes it work is the, is that it's a wide angle lens. Yeah. It is, it is a very wide lens for all intents and purposes. And it does not have, uh, or it has a lot of depth of field. And there are shots that feel like they're just, and I mean this in a good way that feel like they're in some like really serious top light that feels like they're really in like not a dramatically lit hallway, which of course, a lot of these things look very like, you know, contrasting and dramatic and, you know, because we want them to look like movies. But in reality, if this was a real fight scene, they would just be in a corridor with a bunch of lights. And it feels like that, but in a real tactile way, not in a bad lighting way. And the chromatic aberration, like I'm super sensitive to that because I love it. And I know that when they add it and they did it all over this movie, but there's like, it just, it, where it's not a real lens, it feels like a real lens and where it is a real lens. It's just amazing. Cause there are, those aren't all digital doubles of the actors that can't be, that would be seem like unnecessary to just do a full CG thing of the whole thing. Maybe Mike has other information, but, uh, to, to move through and around and zigzag and come kind of spirally through the whole thing without feeling uh, that you don't know where you are. And when you don't know where you are, something passes by the screen and you're reoriented kind of really immediately. And then you end at the far end of the hallway and then the camera pushes back through the hole in the whatever the last character is like right over them as 
Gamora slices them. Like it's just the the blocking and the the obfuscation of the lens at the just the right times was like you know to your point, um, balletic if that's a word. Well, and I think the fisheye. You make a great point about the fisheye. I've forgotten about that specifically, but it yields all these amazing uh, you know, kind of distortions as well as like so much action around the fringe of our primary like moment that we're watching, but we're also able to get so much of that action really just right in your face. And I think that that Mm -hmm. alters the, the totality of the way you experience that narratively too. It's, it's really, really, uh, smart choices across the board. I think after this, we'll probably discuss the extraordinary number of needle drops in this but surely jason they had you at no sleep till brooklyn (laughs) oh they had me at uh rainbow and uh (laughs) and uh what was what was the other one i have the i have the thing here i couldn't remember them all i mean the 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 creep i'm gonna read through them just because i i brought up the the list here because i couldn't remember them all because they was just bombarded by the film but you know the creep Acoustic version is great because you it, they don't want it to get too big. Of course, I'm, and I'm reading these just because, you know, crazy on you, heart, great. A, like, I think it's like the last record rainbow, like maybe Jolyn Turner era rainbow post-Dio, you know, like great, a good 80s song. Personally, not a band I was a huge fan of, but that <laughs> Space Hog tune oh, was yeah. like the perfect drop for that. One hit wonder uh, band, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was <laughs> like, oh shit, Space Hog. And of course, Flaming Lips, you know. I don't yeah. know. For me, it was the, the, uh, oh, I mean, the, I thought, the, yeah. I thought yeah, the Beastie yeah. Boys was extraordinary, but the, the, I yeah. was like, you, you, okay, but let's get back to the corridor. So, but also, I'm just going to throw out just first record single, Faith No More, with Chuck Mosley, not a Mike Patton drop. I thought it was a very, that was a respectful, drop with the we care a lot that was a good one i thought there was a bit too much in terms of needle drops like it was a bit too much like we're just going to pump another song in here i know it's called Mm -hmm. volume three but the first film the sound the sounds were more organically connected it seemed to what was going on this one it felt more like we're just going to amp up the music for a sequence Mm -hmm. my exception to that is is uh, the beastie boys corridor which i just spectacular yeah okay so uh you're right i don't know how they did it because i we got a chance to talk to Guy Williams at uh, Weta who uh, who steered it. So I can tell you some uh, interesting stuff about it, but there's a whole story uh, being posted on FX Guide. So Guy Williams is Weta's VFX soup. Uh, he said that that took like a year. It took them six months to get it to a point of working out mm. how to do it. So there were six months of taking the 16 separate shots and stitching them together to work out what would work. And, and the, one of the reasons I brought up the Beastie Boys is not only did they have to make that work cinematically, not only did they have to make that work in terms of the lensing and the choreography and all the points that we've mentioned in terms of lighting and everything else, but the beats of the action had to hit the beats of the song. Mm-hmm. And so there was a point at the six-month mark where they were like, okay, we've now got all the 16 shots moving one to one to one to two to two to three you can't change anything because if we change just one thing, we're yeah. going to lose sync with the audio and everything's going to like fall out of uh, place. So yeah, look, uh, and the thing, it wasn't shot with motion control. It was shot um, with over multiple days. Uh, it was shot incredibly well, Guy said. Like they, he was really, really impressed with how they'd shot it and how they'd planned it and they'd put it all together. Uh, so there's no criticism here at all from Weta. That being said, it was a mother to stitch together because um, you can imagine, right? If you're doing a shot, 
that connects up with another shot and you're shooting it the next day, no matter how much you try and line up the cameras and do all the right yeah. things. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A hand just to be on a wide angle lens close to camera, it's off by an, a millimeter or two and it looks like two feet on screen. Uh, that was really complicated. The basic strategy that they took was to do a lot of digital double replacement of parts of the actors and obviously sometimes the entire actor. Um, <laughs> And some of those actors obviously were easier to do uh, than others, right? Because some of the characters just go well as CG characters. Like obviously um, Chris Pratt, his face is the sort of thing that you don't yeah. want to like. Now at the other end of that spectrum, Groot is completely CG. Rocket's mm -hmm. completely CG, as are most of the villains, which they're jumping right. off, slicing, shooting, and generally dispatching though not all of them there are a bunch of guys the guy that gets on a few guy that got stuck up on the wall with the knife mm -hmm. yeah. so i don't know if you're if you guys listening at home remember this shot but there's a bit at which drax gets a knife and stabs it in one of the henchman's basically legs pinning him up on the wall at which point um what's the character the little furry thing that's like a dog anyway it basically jumps off him and straight back again the guy's hanging there by his leg poor bastard and for most of the rest of the shot you can see him like up on the wall so that's these are like actual actors but sometimes they had to be digitally replaced but uh nebula um uh obviously another character that you can do uh digital work on any of the characters that had obviously a ton of prosthetic makeup or even drax yeah like... yeah exactly you can do digital doubles for them and stuff but those characters um uh like uh, uh, Nebula or whatever is swinging off the arms of Groot. So this is like uh, not to be underestimated because not only do you have the problem of trying to link up all of the live action that you've shot, but there are these very, very large physical CG characters occupying your space and people are bouncing off them and you're bouncing off them. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just have a person standing there with a tennis ball on a bit of, you know, rod to kind of make something work because that's just not going to cut it and mm -hmm. even if you could get all the characters live action which they possibly never could but imagine you could by the time you add in all the blasts lasers bangs and sparks and everything else you have an enormous amount of contact lighting on all of the characters that are in the thing so it is it is like everything you could possibly think of every trick in the book to get the lighting right the the motion right, the choreography right, the lensing right, the timing right, the mm -hmm. uh, the contact lighting and uh, the motion blur and the as you say, all of the camera aspects as they move uh, through the space. They do. If you watch it, and I've watched it several times out, you can see points where, like, it goes to a wall when something gets splattered, and or a large tentacle kind of moves through front. Oh, there's like definitely there's definitely yeah. like rope esque moments yeah. where they block yeah. the screen oh, but right. like who yeah but like who cares like it's yeah. oh no it's so, i'm gonna say that there are other ones saying, where they yeah. are where they are literally switching between uh two shot sequences and that character is your focus at the front fully visible not motion blurred and they're they're transitioning from a full live action to a to a virtually full cg as they cross the uh the the threshold of those two um two adjoining shots it is I think Matt, you summed it up. It is like an incredible demonstration of visual effects work. Like it's oh yeah, just jaw dropping. And all and all underpinned. The whole middle of that fight scene is underpinned by a Kerry King guitar solo, <laughs> who is the guitar player from Slayer. 
So let's just. Not I think. It, that yeah, part. I think you know a way to think about it too. Like in that, I mean, not to be too hyperbolic, but I mean, I really think it's a fair thing to say, especially given all that you just shared, Mike. I mean, those are all things I didn't know anything about in terms of the production of the shot, and it's it really is a, a great example for right now of the state of the art of what you can mm-hmm. do in a really big action sequence in a visual effects film. It's like, I mean, it's it's really a high achievement, I think. One thing to focus on if you see it again or when you see it on uh, streaming or whatever. Um, so a way they solved a lot of the problems is that they reprojected the background. So because things wouldn't mm. line up and because you have these very deliberate lines of perspective, you kind of basically just favor the foreground and then the background gets whacked and you whack the, the background, but then you reproject it back, obviously in Nuke, to get it to line up again, right? And mm-hmm. And I think that, I would actually encourage you to look at the background because not only does they do they succeed in connecting it by basically doing a lot more CG work behind the characters than to, to solve this problem. But the other thing that's really clever is that they fill the frame with little narrative pieces all the way at the back. Mm-hmm. So while it's incredibly hard to take your eyes off what's happening in the foreground, if you're looking in the background, there's heaps of gags going yeah. on and all of the gags are fairly much character specific, Yeah. Gamora hangs back and doesn't fight with the team because she's not really part of the team. So mm-hmm. her action, if you look at it all, is very character-specific action where she hangs back and then attacks through the power of her own skill. Whereas if you look at Rocket and um, and uh, like any of the others really, well, maybe a little less um, uh, with Drax, but they are very much using each other and working as a team that has clearly Mm -hmm. grown for years to know how to work together as a team. And it's really interesting. I think that like, that it's not just gratuitously, I'm going to kill this character. You're going to shoot that one. Like every one of those characters has a trait a skill or whatever. And it's all of those things that they're using. No, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but it, it, to your point, it felt like they, it felt very observational, like almost like jazz, like they were listening to each other. They were watching mm-hmm. each other. It wasn't like a, like a hokey thing, like shoot. And Hey, now it's your turn. Like it, it felt, which is more important, like, cause you're not going to catch all the minutia and certainly not the first time the vibe and the feel was exactly what you were saying. A well choreographed machine that were working together without thinking because they were observing peripherally what each was doing and when something came near them they knew this might happen i'm going to do this and x y and z which makes it feel real right like you see a well-honed you know machine of people doing something there is again i think this goes back to a lot of the things we say on this show about visual history right and that were or a yeah yeah choreographed history like just feeling that lets us know that there's something happening. There's no exposition. They don't have to say one more fight guys. You know, like it's not yeah. necessary. I think you know, it's funny think talking about film, the, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say like the thing also that I want to just not pass over is just how spectacularly good Gamora's head cracking is like her neck gets broken and mm-hmm. her face goes over and clearly no, nebula. nebula, nebula, sorry, sorry, big pardon. And nebula's face goes over and, uh, and it, it's clearly, got to be visual effects right like when you can't break someone's neck but there's no point in that shot where you go that kind of looks a bit hokey right it's like her head is lying on her shoulders and Mm -hmm. yeah um and by the way i think that uh it's karen gillen right from uh, like doctor who 
Mm-hmm. I think it was great that she got a bigger kind of role and a bigger sort of presence and wasn't just, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah, mean, she's always a bit second she's, fiddle. She's fun. And she, she even, uh, I read an article, uh, in the indie wire or something like that, probably maybe four or five months ago, but she actually uh, is a director too. She went and made her own movie, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, wait, wait, I thought they used her well, but, but in just that sequence, uh, like it's, as you were saying, like it's spectacularly good visual effects that you can crack her head and it isn't a cutaway. It's right, right up in the bottom left-hand corner of screen. If I remember correctly. the one thing and about talking about, I was going to say talking about this sequence for so long and talking about the details of it. Like, I have to say, like, when you said like, oh yeah, in that background, like it, you have to just kind of let it go. And then it's reprojected later, like in nuke or whatever. Like I just, all I can think about is the compositor anxiety that would come, would come <laughs> with a shot like that with so many different layers and elements and things being reprojected and trying to get things to line up and sync. Like, oh man, I mean, like an amazing feat for sure. Can I highlight yeah, a couple I mean, other things that I think are really yeah, sure. worth mentioning? Other things that stuck out to me that I just thought were fun, like, um, and one in particular I thought was a really great visual effect from a design standpoint as well as execution. But I did really like Nebula's new arm uh, mm-hmm. in this, that it was this kind of weird, um, kind of carbon fibery, kind of steel rope kind of thing, cable mm-hmm. that would morph and change. It was very kind of like an interesting twist on a kind of T-1000 kind of um, uh, concept. And that was just kind of interesting and fun as a design thing. And it, I think fun is a a simple, well, not simple, I shouldn't say simple, but um, a less complex uh, visual effect um, kind of thing that was neat to watch. I thought too, the, um, there's a kind of, uh, at one point in the narrative, there's this really cool in space, this kind of um, pirate ship, almost like, um, you know, broadside kind of battle between the the uh, nowhere, the skull, right? And the mm-hmm. spinning of the wheel of nowhere to get it to line up with the baddie ship. I can't remember what the name of the vehicle mm-hmm. was called, but I think there's a lot of really great, you know, moments in there that are dealing with like the physics of large objects moving at, at a certain speed and buttressing up against one another. I thought a lot of that was really mm-hmm. um, well executed and just, you know, fun to watch. Like it was visually kind of like, well, this is, I really feel like I'm watching something that's pretty well, bonkers. Let me just to, correct myself. I said earlier, it was Mantis that was swinging off. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, group. I, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I completely. Um, I, I think it's one of the, I mean, I hesitate to use the word smaller, but maybe like um, ex, uh, bits of visual effects execution is when they send out all, when the bad guy's ship sends out all the singular, like um, bad guy, like um, mutated bad guy dudes that just had the little helmets on and they would go do stuff. And they it, like the, again, for scale, you know, you see they're so tiny. You literally just see their rocket explode, you know, rocket, propulsions and then they come through the crack in nowhere and again they're so tiny right like it, it's just a really good just set scale so well yeah, I mean, yeah. they're in a giant head right i mean which speaking I, of yeah, yeah no i totally agree and I, speaking of scale that's the other thing i had which was the thing i really liked which is a different shot but similar that it's it really conveyed scale in a way that like it was arresting visually when it when the um guardian's ship i can't remember the name of it but when Mm -hmm. it lands on the the earth two or whatever Mm -hmm. and it kind of comes in for its landing and we see that kind of just boring kind of country 
exurban kind of streetscape with the houses yeah. and stuff that looks like you know anywhere America really frankly um it, it that that ship comes in and it lands and the scale of it it's yeah. so enormous but yet the way in which it's lit and it sits in that space it really feels like it's there and that scale is so startling visually but god it's you can't take your eyes off of it i just think it's so great and then the last thing i have to cite is just a funny gag in the in the show is when they're rescuing all the all the animals and stuff there's the one character that they let out of the cage that's like you don't even know what it is oh it's yeah so fucking he goes thank you, you know, yeah <laughs> isn't, that, that isn't that the director isn't that isn't that his cameo oh, oh maybe. I, I don't mean, know probably yeah that so. would be appropriate. I, I thought one thing was really funny is, you know, when the ship's leaving the uh, Earth 2, as you called it, there's these enormous kind of water sims going on. They were doing this at the same time as Avatar. And so it was the one point oh. where Weta had to be like really careful to not have too many water shots. They could have lots of shots that are in space. They could have lots of shots of destruction on the ground. But right. actually it coming out of the water, it was like, you know, it was like, I. Right, Please don't like over overstress yeah. our water sim team because they're already doing quite a lot of work. Yeah, in, uh, in Avatar. Um, uh, to that point of that scale, I did also like that scale shot of the because because they they make a real I think a good visual choice to make the feet come down on either side of the houses like they don't actually right. damage any of the properties like it comes down and I think for me what sells the scale is the shadow mm -hmm. the amount of like because it's it's broad daylight. Everything's super top lit, you know, just like ET neighborhood. And it just, the, the, the subtle shadow fall off. It doesn't go to black. Like it just has this really nice shadow. And then of course, when they walk down the plank, like you get the reverse and it just, I think that just seals it. I think the visual gag for me is that it's the seven, late seventies, early eighties on that planet. And <laughs> then the they cars. go inside that, they go inside the house and all the photos and the like super smart from a design standpoint, a production design standpoint, like it's earth Two. They somehow went through the same bad choices we did in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. And, and even the music had like a kind of like a Mexican like vibe to it, you know, like late stage like capitalism, a, Jason, come on. Yeah. Wait, was, what is, how does the Mexican thing relate to what? No, it just, it felt like, it felt like it was like a, like an, it to me it it read like a Los Angeles kind of immigrant. Okay, because because we're not clear about this, right? We're not saying that something would be not succeeding because it was Mexican. We're not saying. No, that. no, no, I, no. I thought no, everything yeah. succeeded. I yeah. wasn't. I wasn't yeah. saying. I I said. I said. I just thought the reference, the visual and audio, so the overall production design reference was very tactile for an quote alien planet for us to feel like it was a second Earth. Agree. Sure. I just have quite to say, frankly, right now, I'd prefer to live in, in Mexico than many oh other countries. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Well, and I, anyway. I just have to say, my I grew up in Southern California and I had many friends whose families were from Mexico. And one of my good friends always would remind me, hey, remember, it's Mexican, not Mexican. <laughs> I always thought that was good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think, uh, so there's there are some moments in this uh, character animation, the shot design, the the scale of these uh, ships and stuff, they're all really, really good. Can I just give one shout out though to practical effects, which is uh, when Star-Lord makes his final leap from the ship and he starts freezing up and his face goes pear-shaped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that was, as I understand it, fairly much practical special effects. And I thought that was really good. I thought it was brave and 
good to not make it like he could do that without having any effects, mm-hmm. uh, as in effect on him, as it were. He couldn't just sort of do it miraculously and have a few crystals on his face and then it would all be fine. So screwing up his face the way they did made it seem more heroic and he made the actor look darn ugly, which is yeah not the point of the exercise, but it's great to see that they went there and just didn't have him looking, you know, sort of uh, Marvel hero-esque in that he, moment of self-sacrifice. He did look a little back to normal pretty fast though in the that's true I later that. cuts like like yeah. let's get some some vascular damage or something at least you know but but he did look pretty screwed up when he landed oh yeah no they definitely almost total recalled it you know the one the one thing i, <laughs> I the one thing I, I wanted to mention too like which it was the one part in the movie that actually like made me feel kind of emotional weirdly enough in a movie like this that i would even feel that way there's a moment where uh there's a fight that's going on and I can't try to remember who the character is. I don't remember who the character is who's struggling to hold on. And um, who was it? And the, the Mantis character touches the character and says, you are so strong. She says to the character, do you remember? Oh, what to, well, she says that to, uh, to Cosmo, the dog who's trying to right. yeah, and tele- there was telepathically keep the bridge that's together right. there. And there was something about that moment in the, the, the weakening of the character, mm-hmm. this, this execution of something that I don't remember seeing this before in the guardians movies, maybe it happened in another one, but that the, the power of that character is so ridiculous, but it's also so perfect in a way. It's like having like the perfect mother or the perfect father mm-hmm. or the perfect, you know, best friend or whatever come to you and tell you the the thing that you need to hear that will get you through something challenging and difficult. I mean, the psychological that, and emotional thing about it, I thought was really, really cool. I really It's easy to that. skip over the performance. Like that French actress, her name's Paul Macapanesis. Cliff, mm-hmm. I can't remember. I apologize, I can't pronounce her surname. But like she, she delivers so many good comic lines, mm-hmm. and yet she really has spectacular acting chops. Like it's really not that easy to be because she does vary between kind of getting it and not. Like I think it's terrible when you have a dumb character in a team. Like you know, in sitcoms, you'd often have like yeah. one character that's just stupid, yeah. like the Joey character in Friends, and it's yeah. just you know, Joey never but gets. That was it. a strong emotive line that was like yeah, a, a yeah. giving dramatic line yeah. a loving line that was really powerful i thought but i think that's to your point mike i think that's kind of the joke of this one is they try to pass the torch throughout the thing of who's dumb right like and yeah. of course none of them are but they try to pass that torch and i think M- much as we do similar, on the show <laughs> hey you know we try uh but i would say to matt's point another good use of her of mantis's um, emotive using it in an emotive way is when they're when she tells Drax that she thinks you know things that are negative about him, and then she just touches his head and says forget. Yeah, and it's like a it's like a, just a little gift. Like she had to say it in the moment or whatever, and she clearly feels bad about it. But she does. There's no exposition about it. She you know by her touching his face and saying forget that she feels bad about it. That it's the the scenario. It's very. Um, efficient writing and blocking. Yeah, I, I agree. I actually think you see, and I hope this is not a bad thing, but I thought the the gay joke about uh, Drax being gay with the this character loves you showed her affectionate acting to Drax mm-hmm. like really nicely, right? Like she was teasing him in a way that you only do with somebody that you care about. 
but well, and, yeah, she's and, and they, they brought that relationship. Sorry to go on about the story, but yeah. they brought that relationship full circle in a way in another very corny, but like appropriately emotive line where it was like, you're not a destroyer. You weren't made to be a destroyer. You were yeah. made to dad you know and it's like oh mm-hmm. well, every dad that takes their kid to see that is like yeah you know gonna be like you know checked yeah. out yeah. for a moment so so Good. acting chops to pom as to many of the other uh actors especially yeah. when they're acting under makeup right um so we gotta wind up the show but i think we'd agree uh it's it's the marvel that we loved uh and the marvel that we hope to see more of and it's it's a good balance of humor action but overarchingly this is just visual effects artists at the top of their game. So, mm-hmm, you know, for sure. I've named a couple of the houses. There are a couple of others, obviously, that contributed. I think the main two, though, as I say, were Wetter and uh, Framestore. And uh, they, yeah, knocked it out of the park. So for those, hopefully, maybe listening to the show, uh, uh, well, respect, guys. And Andy Circus's company did a lot of the mm-hmm. the performance capture because I saw his name in the, it was like performance yeah. capture manager, Andy Circus. I'm like, oh, look at yeah, that. That's cool. You know? Okay, guys. Well, that's been uh, terrific chatting with you. Where can uh, Matt people uh, follow up and uh, connect with you if they want to? I'm on mastodon.social, Matt Wallen, uh, and mattwallen.com, VCU Arts. And I will be this weekend at the 40th anniversary reunion party for the Return of the Jedi. Woo! At the old island. Hashtag respect. Yes. Double hashtag. Listen. I'm just going to preface where you can find me by saying... I highly appreciated the Howard the Duck sitting around that poker table or (laughs) whatever they're doing. I love Howard the Duck. Anyway. uh, Well, it has to be somebody. What'd you say? I said there has to be at least somebody that likes him. Yeah, that's me. I love the the, the movie too. (laughs) I I thought it was Uh, ridiculous. Anyway. I love it. Or the carrot guy. It was like a Christopher Nolan movie. The carrot guy was was funny. Stop it, Wong. (laughs) Seriously, Wong. Freaking every single movie that guy. I'll you take the Howard the Duck movie oh, over Tenet. Man. We'll still no, say that. No, you know. Oppenheimer. No, Oppenheimer. I'm going to drag you kicking and streaming into. What I'm just going to watch Howard the masterpiece. Duck masterpiece. I'm just going to watch Howard the Duck in reverse and call it Tenet. <laughs> you can watch Howard uh, the Duck, and that would be your punishment. I'm going to watch Oppenheimer on my Apple Watch, just in the way that it's yeah. meant to be seen. Oh, you Watchenheimer. <laughs> Uh, I'm, 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 anyway, I, I'm not I, I am going to talk to you anymore if you continue like this, but go on. I, I am uh, Jason Diamond on all the socials, uh, our virtual production playground, Zero Space. And uh, yes, that's many other things. And I'm over on FX Guide. And of course, that's where we've also be uh, running our coverage of uh, Guardians and uh, talking to people like uh, Guy Williams and uh, others from uh, the visual effects teams that put this stuff together and and uh, shout out to them. And again, thank you guys so much for listening to us. And uh, we do like your feedback. And so please email us or ping us if you've got uh, opinions or comments. There's a bunch of great stuff coming up, especially Oppenheimer. So we're looking forward to that. And we'll uh, talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much, guys. See ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thefx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.